Hey family, this is Joshua Jones. My wife, Lindsay, and I have the honor of being the lead followers of Way Family Church right here in Edmond, Oklahoma. Thank you for taking a minute to tune in. We pray the message gives you a different perspective about Jesus, His gospel, and what living life in His kingdom is all about. Take notes, listen intently, and be blessed. One thing I, I, I love to talk about in situations like this, and because of the foundation that is already being laid here, which is, it, it's easy to just, it's easy to get focused on just the idea of grace. I, I love how Pastor Josh puts a focus more on just the gospel. Uh, I have a, I have an e-course on my website. It's, it's five or six hours on, on really what is the gospel, you know, and the gospel is, is more than just death, burial, and resurrection. And most of us, depending on how you were raised, uh, there's actually seven things called the gospel in the New Testament. There's the gospel of God, the gospel of the dear son, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, and the gospel of the kingdom. All of them are one gospel, but the gospel is multidimensional. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, he said, I long to come to you to preach the gospel to you. Well, he's talking to Christians. Why, why would he want to preach the gospel to people who've already heard the gospel? Because maybe the gospel is bigger than just you get to go to heaven someday and you confess your sins and now, now you're good. The gospel's bigger than just death, burial, and resurrection, even though that's very important. And, but what I found is most movements and most denominations and, and churches, they'll preach maybe three or four of the seven, and people are extremely deficient in the gospel. Like, I was raised classical Pentecostal, and I heard the gospel of God. That's the, the sovereign God, the, 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 the master, the one that we are here to serve and, and bow before. I heard the gospel of Christ in the Pentecostal church. That's the anointed one. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in the believer and the gifts of the Spirit. We were all into that, but we didn't know anything about the gospel of grace. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't know anything about the gospel of peace. But now I go into a lot of grace churches, and they got the gospel of grace down, but they don't understand the gospel of peace because they all stopped being legalists and they turned into gracists. And the same spirit got on them because now they're still fighting with all the law keepers, and, and, and they're forgetting the whole point. And then neither group has a revelation of the kingdom because most of our eschatology you know, has the kingdom three miles south of Mars on the way here through the Hubble telescope, and someday over yonder, the kingdom is going to manifest. And so all of it is the gospel. And if we're going to really hear the full gospel, when I was growing up, all the churches had up front full gospel. And all, all that meant was they believed with the Baptists and the Lutherans and the congregation to believe we just had tongues and miracles to it. Because most of the time they weren't preaching the full gospel because there was whole dimensions of it that they were missing or they were leaving out. But I love how he puts more of the focus on on the gospel, but when you are preaching the gospel, and it starts with the gospel of grace, grace is the foundation. If you don't get grace, you're not going to get any of the rest of it. When you're preaching the gospel of grace, it's one thing to preach it and teach it. It's another thing to develop a culture of grace. So what I want to share and just talk about a little bit this morning is developing a culture of grace where we don't just teach something and preach something, but we live something. Uh, one of the most difficult things I had to do, I, I tell people that my baptism into the grace of God was far greater than my baptism in the Holy Spirit. I, I was filled with the Holy Spirit at five years old, and it was a powerful experience, but then I was raised with so much law and so much legalism, and I, I was raised terrified. Did, did you know that right now, whole schools of, of psychiatry are forming whole new wings and actually degrees in dealing with what they've coined religious PTSD. 
that religious trauma, I mean, you see it sometimes on, you know, on social media, people are like talking about toxicity they, they got in church. But I'm, I'm telling you, psychology now has coined a whole new phrase that people raised in fear-based religion. It literally has produced all kinds of trauma and PTSD in them. Really, they literally get triggered uh, by, by just going to church or hearing certain things. And the sad thing is the safest place on the planet should be right here. The safest place on the planet for your children, for, for you to, to fully be yourself and loved with no shame, no blame. It should be right here. But finding a culture like that, you know, many of you that have been coming here, you realize how rare that is. And so I, I've been preaching grace for 20 years. And 11 years ago, we, we started a church in Saginaw, Michigan, Saginaw per capita uh, top three most dangerous city in America. Matter of fact, top tens all in Michigan, Saginaw, Flint, Detroit. God bless my home state. And we started in the city. We had we only did Sunday night service. We had a great eclectic group. We had, for some reason, God sent me. Uh, well, I asked him. I said, send me all the people that no one else knows anything to do with. And uh, we had we had all kinds of gangbangers. We had we had half our church was Latin kings. For some reason, we had favor with all the big big old Hispanic boys. I mean, big boys. I, I never worried about nothing when I wasn't there. I mean, because they come up, they said, "Pop, we got mom and sis. Don't worry about it." Because there's guys that would show up, and they my daughter was 18 leading worship, and they just stare at her the whole time. And these boys would walk over next to them, like, "You better leave my sis alone. You better stop mean mugging her. You know, <laughs> you, you ain't gonna touch her." And I, I, I never worried about nothing. Someone brought a gun in, <laughs> and have about 50 knives <laughs> thrown at them because everybody was packing something. But I realized preaching a message is one thing, but leading a culture of grace is a whole nother ballgame because most of us have only been around command and control leadership. We've only seen a a business corporate model of CEO. And, and if you mess up, if you mess up, man, I mean, you're removed, you're, you're kicked to the curb. Nobody's, nobody's restoring you or giving you grace. Even the scripture says, uh, you know, those that are spiritual restore. And when nobody's getting restored, it just lets you know there's probably not a whole lot of spiritual people around, which is a very sad thing. And I, I, I realized something then. I said, this is not just something we preach. This is something we have to literally demonstrate on how we govern. See, this is what's happening right now. Over the last 15 to 20 years, cross-denominationally, people are getting a revelation of the new covenant. I mean, I'm telling you, it's happening everywhere. I mean, a good friend of mine, Dr. Lynn Howes, we say it all the time. He said, we were preaching it when it wasn't cool. Now, you know, now... And when we were heretics from one side of the country to the other. But now it's like people are starting to grasp it and they're getting a hold of it. But what's happening is it's one thing for us to preach a message. It's one thing to have a message. It's another thing for the message to have you. Uh, how you know you've really gotten a hold of grace is when you learn how to be gracious. Because it's easy it's easy to preach a message. It's easy to tell people something. It's a whole other ball game when you have to do it. And I remember when we first started the church, all I had been raised in church around was command and control. And I remember the first time we had this a young couple, they were, they were doing our media ministry and they were engaged. And I'd been gone for a couple of weeks as we started with a team. I only preached twice a month. 
And uh, I noticed they weren't up front worshiping like they normally were. And I was looking around. I'm like, man, where, where's James? And actually, I'm, I'm looking around. And finally, I turn around, and they're standing at the back with their heads down. And I was like, something's up. Sure enough, after the service, they came up to me. They said, Bishop, can, can we talk to you in the office? And we, we came in the office. And they sat down in the chair, and, and his head's down. And he said, I need to talk to you about something. We haven't talked to our parents yet or anybody else. But uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to need to step down from, from leading the media ministry. I said, well, what's going on? And he said, well, he said a few months back, he said, uh, we were alone. And he said, you know, we're going to be married in about six months. And he said, uh, you know, I wasn't self-controlled. He said, I'm, I'm supposed to be the man in the relationship. And he said, she's pregnant. And his head is down. And the moment he said it to me, I said, stand up. So both of them to stand up. They stood up. I walked around and looked him right in the eyes. I said, this changes absolutely nothing with God. God's not shocked by this. He's not surprised by this. Matter of fact, you're still loved. You're still accepted. I begin to speak to their sonship and begin to release this grace. And then I looked at him. I said, look at me. I said, you're still my son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. This doesn't change how I feel about you. One single ounce. And all of a sudden, their, their countenance came up and their head lifted up. And we just begin to speak that life back into them because it's easy to condemn. It's easy to not give grace. The next day, he called me on the phone. He said to me, he said, Bishop, I will never forget how you responded to my shame. But then I said to him, I said, but now listen, you're going to have to tell your parents and uh, they're probably not going to be as gracious. They're probably going to be a little upset because they were very religious. And I said, there's, there's going to be consequences because there's consequences for all of our actions. What we, what we sow, we reap. And I'm like, we just want you to know that we love you no matter what and we give you grace, but... Uh, and he told me, he said, actually, he said, the church that we came from, if this would have happened there, they would have marched us the next Sunday up on the platform, and we would have had to, in front of the whole church, tell them what we did. I said, wow. I mean, I'd heard of stuff, but that one, I was like, really? You know, I was like, I hadn't, thank God I hadn't experienced that. That's like horrifying. I happen to love covers. But the truth is, 10 years before, if that would have happened, I'd have been, what were you thinking? You're right, you're sitting down. You ain't doing nothing in ministry in this church. You're blah, 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 blah. I mean, I just know I would have went after my A personality. I'm still an A personality, no matter how much grace I have. And there's a lot of people that follow me. And I have a lot of people follow me on social media because of how I graciously respond to diffractors and, and people coming after me. The, uh, and I love to tell them, I said, I appreciate that, but you have no idea the first two comments that that I typed out <laughs> that I had to erase and the Holy Spirit says, nah, no, you, you, because the truth is that sometimes I just, I just feel like I got to type out, you're an idiot. So, you know, just, I can't, I'd love to just tell you I'm over all that. I'm just, he's still working on me too. <laughs> love, love, love to just tell you I'm always that gracious. And, oh man. Woo. I still need the Holy Spirit as much as anybody else. But there, there's something that happens when you not only get a hold of this gospel, but this gospel gets a hold of you. And it becomes a part of how you treat people. And when, when I was in my 20s and 30s and early 40s, I just turned 55 this year. And, uh, and I used to think that maturity and depth was how much revelation you had, how much scripture you knew, and 
And so I lived my life. I mean, I, you know, because I was on the road, I was in hotels and, and planes a lot. I had the time. I would read four or five books a week, and I'd just gobble stuff up. And I have a near photographic memory, so I rarely forget something that I read. And I go someplace. I mean, we'll be driving down the road, and I'll, I'll say to my wife, I said, man, remember, remember that restaurant? I said, back in, back in 94, we had dinner there with Pastor So-and-so. And she's like, we did not. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I mean, I just, I just I rarely forget stuff. like an elephant, which sometimes is a curse in marriage because when my wife tries to tell me I did something that I know I didn't do. Anyway. <laughs> I've just had to learn to say yes, dear, because I'd rather be in relationship than right. That took me a lot of years to figure out, trust me. That one, that one I almost lost my marriage over because I was more consumed with being right than being in relationship. Because the more you get a hold of this gospel, you realize the relationship is far more important. Far more important than having to be right. And so I, I, I had to come to this, this, this place in leading that I, I realized that this is not just something we say. This is something we have, we have to live. And when you develop a culture of grace, I mean, we, we literally would have, I mean, I love because you said that you were talking about this place. Thank you. This place, there's freedom. Uh, we had people that would come to our church. Religious people rarely lasted more than three weeks. But, but, but we, we had our, our culture. I mean, of course, we weren't in the Bible Belt, right? I mean, uh, you know, you all, you all have opportunity to not only have publicans and prostitutes at your table, but Pharisees show up who are wanting to change. All right, we, we didn't have any. If Pharisees showed up at our church, because every Sunday there was F-bombs in the sanctuary, because, I mean, most of our folks were brand new believers, and that just freaked some folks out. And we actually had one couple. I ran into them at the mall. I ran, I ran into them at the mall. We said, man, we've not seen you for like three months. We're like, hey, you know, listen, we love what y'all are doing. We think it's great, but your church is just too free for us. And I was like, thank you. You know, I mean, I, I really wasn't sure how to respond to that. But you know what I've realized is a lot of people prefer secure slavery over scary freedom. Freedom, freedom tends to be a little scary to people. That secure slavery, there's a, there's a security in that. They're like, you know what, man, I felt safe having these parameters because the truth is in the new covenant, we're still under law. We're just no longer under the law of sin and death. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the royal law. We're under the law of love, the law of life and love and liberty in Christ Jesus. We're still governed by something, but we're governed, we still have parameters, but they're love parameters. I don't do this because I love. I don't do this because it's a rule. I do it because love wouldn't do this to somebody. And so I, I, allow me let, me, let me, let me finally get to the Bible because I guess a church leadership thing, I probably ought to, you know, mention a, a scripture or so. <laughs> but uh, to me, a beautiful picture of this is found uh, in type and, and shadow in the Old Testament. And it's the story of the children of Israel. They come out of Egypt. They come through the Red Sea. And, and they get to a place where they realize, man, we're out in the middle of this desert and, and we're, we're thirsty. We need something to drink like horribly bad. And so God gives Moses instruction. He strikes the rock. Water flows out of the rock. Paul tells us the rock, of course, was Christ. And then the most amazing thing that I hardly ever hear anybody talk about is it said the rock followed them around. I mean, they had a pet rock. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, I'm telling you, the reason all the reason all these ites were terrified of the Israelites is because, man, they'd send spies, and the spies were like, man, they got this big old rock just following them. We're like, you know, like these people, I don't know what they got, but they got this big rock following them everywhere, just... <laughs> 
it actually says that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know if they put it on a card. I don't know. They might have, but I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Maybe it floated around and followed them. I don't know. I guess God can do whatever he wants. But after the water comes out of the rock and they're refreshed, because the purpose of the refreshing of the Holy Spirit is to take us to the next place. And they came to a place called Rephidim. Rephidim actually means rest because the purpose for the refreshing of the Holy Spirit is not to get us to contend and strive and labor more. It's to get us to a place where we learn how to rest. And when you rest, it doesn't mean you don't work. It's just you stop working for God and you start working with God. You stop working for a blessing. I tell people, the more I got a revelation of grace, I know people that get a revelation of grace and they were legalists and they worked their tail off for 30 years in church. They get a revelation of grace and now they don't want to do nothing. You know, they'll watch Joseph Prince and Joseph Prince will say something like, it's not what you do, 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 it's what he's done, done, done. And that's true for your salvation, but then nobody wants to do, do, do anything. You know, you can't get all these people to show up to a morning leadership thing because nobody wants to do anything because, bless God, you're trying to put me back under, under law and works. But yet the very thing that tells us that it's not by works that we're saved, but by grace through faith also says we are also his workmanship created for good work so he still has a work for us to do but the work doesn't produce contending and striving and struggling it produces learning how to flow with God I, I don't I'm not doing stuff to get a blessing I realize I'm already blessed because I'm already blessed I want to be a blessing I'm not I'm not trying to earn his love I'm already radically loved and so then I want to love I'm all already everything that I'm trying to get. I just have to get my mind transformed to believe that what is objectively true of me, I subjectively begin to demonstrate. That I am a son that is fully accepted and fully loved. Matter of fact, Hebrews says I've been perfected forever. I don't really feel that perfect, but it's because I now have to convince between my ears that what he says is true of me actually becomes a reality. That's why, that's why one, one of the myths in my, in my book is, is that, you know, it's not the truth that sets us free. It's the knowledge of the truth. That word knowledge is Greek word gnosko, and it literally means an intimate knowing, like Adam knew Eve. It means an encounter with the truth. That's why Paul said men would ever be learning, never coming to the gnosko of the truth. That means you can go from conference to conference, podcast to podcast, and never learn how to walk the truth out. You're ever learning, but you're never coming to the real intimate knowledge of the truth because it's the Holy Spirit that makes the truth alive on the inside of you. It's not just information. It has to become revelation. But they come to Rephidim and they're at rest. And it says immediately when they come to this place of rest, Amalekites come. The word Amalek, it literally means dirt dwellers. Uh, how many know, man, you can, you can come out of a service on Sunday and you just minister to the Lord and he ministered to you and whoo, you're at rest. You just had the refreshing, the water was flowing out of that rock and it was good. And then you, you go meet with some family about four in the afternoon and them dirt dwellers, I don't know, help me Jesus. Or you go to work on Monday and that boss that gets on your last nerve, those Amalekites know how to try to get you out of rest like really quick. Whew. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Then, uh, so God gives direction to Moses. He said, Moses, he said, I, I want you to go up. I want you to go up on the mountain and I want you to take Aaron and her with you. And he said, then he said, I want you to send Joshua down to the valley to fight the Amalekites. And if you remember the story, as long as 
Moses had his hands in worship because the main job of a leader, if there is a work a leader has, it is to ultimately always be in a place of feeding people, but you feed by, first of all, feeding yourself by feeding him. You know, there's a, there's a passage, Psalm 51 says something very interesting. God speaking through David, and he said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. And that verse bugged me for years. Because first of all, I'm like, can God get hungry? You know, and then Jesus shows up, God in the flesh, and he did his best work around tables. Jesus loved to eat. He's called a wine bibber and a drunk. I mean, he, you know, he was called a glutton. I mean, he, he knew how to party, I'm telling you. He, I'm telling you, if Jesus showed back up in flesh on this planet, he'd probably be more at the clubs than he would be in most of our churches. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Because at least nobody fronting there. <laughs> and so here's, here's this, this, this picture that the main job of that leader is to be in a place of worship, to be the chief worshiper the chief prayer because we can only give out what we've received. And as long as his hands are raised, that, that, that Hebrew word, it's tauda, it's one of the seven Hebrew words for praise, and it means to throw out the hands with expectancy, but it also means to throw a stone. So actually the real battle wasn't, wasn't down here, that everything he was overseeing was now in the valley beneath him. It wasn't an issue of covering, but what he was an overseer. And as an overseer, what he was overseeing was prospering and winning as long as he was in his proper place. Because ultimately the real battle is not against flesh and blood. The real battle is not with other people. The real battle is a spiritual battle. But then he gets tired. See, this, this is a picture of a lot of the old wineskin, a lot of maybe churches we've been a part of, that it was it was the, the man of God. It's not even God, because God has a W in those churches. He's, he's, he's the man of God. And, and, and your only purpose is to be here to serve the vision of the man of God. And, and yet the, the truth is, according to Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of the scriptures nearly always translated the ministry, but the original Greek actually gives more of an inference of the work of their ministry. In other words, the, the main job of fivefold gifts is actually to help you find your ministry. In fact, I, I remember when I was in my 20s and 30s, I used to get so frustrated going to conferences because I'd go to a conference and, and the leader would get up and he's like, you got to have a vision. What's your, your vision? And someone would ask me my vision and I'd be like, Stay married. <laughs> My kids serving God. I mean, I talked to friends of mine and they had all these grandiose visions. Well, I'm going to build this and I'm going to build one of those. And, and someone asked me and I'd be like, man, I mean, I just felt like useless. I'm like, man, I feel like I ain't got no vision. And then I, I turned 38 and I had a situation where a network of churches was literally thrown in my arms because, and it was a mess at the time. I didn't feel... Like I was ready at all to do that. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. I said, God, if I'm leading leaders now, I've got to have a vision. And he said, son, you've always been doing your vision. I said, what are you talking about? He said, your heart has always been to help others find theirs. He said, matter of fact, that should be the main vision 
of all fivefold ministry gifts. It should be to help others find their vision, not just to have you come help us with ours. And that will be a part of it because we're doing something corporately. But all of a sudden, I mean, I remember when, when we first started our church, I told all the leaders, I said, I want you to write down for me your dream. I want you to write down your vision. I want to be able to have them to look at them. And I'm going to do my best to try to help you fulfill that because that's really my main job to help you with your dream not just for you to be able to help me with mine and when when you've been a part of that command and control system that's not based on grace it's all about everybody coming and serving a man of God's vision and that is just an old covenant concept amen are y'all still here we doing all right and so here's here, here here's Moses he's that that old wineskin it's the one-man show it's, it's the, the man of God. It's the, it's the king's chair in the middle of a platform. I'm so glad we pulled chairs off platforms. I'm, oh, I hated sitting on platforms. Because first of all, you had to look out at a whole bunch of folks that weren't worshiping. You know, I, I, I've always said for years, I'm telling you, the reason worship leaders close their eyes is not because they're spiritual. They, most of the time, they just don't want to, I mean, they got this incredible heart to worship and half the folks are like, <laughs> and they're like, no, I'm that's why sometimes they get a little snippy uh, with folks. I remember being at a church a church in Illinois about five years ago, and they had an 8.30 service and a 10.30 service. And uh, after the service services, we went to eat, and the pastor took the staff, and he said, you know, whenever we have a guest, we like to ask him, is there anything we can do better, anything that you saw? Well, during the 8.30 and the 10.30 service, the worship leader, the worship pastor got up and bawled everybody out for not dancing during this one song. You know, and so, I mean, I'm sitting there now. You understand, so I'm not a morning person. Right? I've traveled for 32 years preaching almost every night. I, I mean, I get my second win at 1030 at night. I ain't going to bed till two or three. So I'm not an early morning person. I was until I start traveling. I'm a second shifter. All right. It's lifestyle. Just is. I'm not a morning person. Like he told me 930. I said, Jesus, help me. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I ain't ready to even grunt till about 10 a.m., let alone, let alone speak. And I, I remember, I said, well, actually, man, you know, you guys really did a great job. And the worship leader was sitting across the table. I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, where on the planet does anybody dance at 8.30 and 10.30 in the morning? I said, people dance at night, chief. Stop bawling people out for not dancing at 8.30 in the morning. You ought to be just thrilled they showed up, let alone dancing. And if they got a heart to dance, that's because they've been dancing all week without a corporate service around them because they're being a worshiper anyway. Stop bawling folks out, all right? And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, that ain't helping nobody, son. Just, just don't do that. He's like, okay. So when Moses' arms come down, now everything they're overseeing starts falling apart. Can I, I just share with you? Uh, most churches, most businesses, corporations, whatever verbiage you want to you use. Normally where things fall apart is when, is when the leaders aren't functioning in unity. As a matter of fact, everything that's going on down there has a lot to do with what's going on right here. And so Aaron and Hur does something that's powerful. They actually, they, they sit Moses on a rock. I'm, I'm so glad. They just didn't sit him anywhere. And they, listen, they, they sat him on a rock. They said, your job as the leader is to be at rest in Christ 
and to be worshiping. And not only, not only you just worshiping, but us also worshiping with you. Did you, you know, there's something so powerful. Uh, I, I was just in, in March, I was in, in, in Holland in the Netherlands, uh, and we did a, um, a conference for five days. And then my, my daughter and her husband went with me. My, my daughter's a, a worship pastor, and uh, she's got, all she's known is this. So, I mean, she's, she's got an incredible revelation on our union with Christ. And, and so she did a couple morning sessions on New Covenant worship. Matter of fact, she was she was invited here about six months ago. Uh, uh, both Bethel and Maverick City, they had a like a songwriter thing in Nashville, and she was like, uh, you had to like actually submit your songs, and she was like one of thirty people that was invited to it. And uh, then they broke up in groups of ten, and she called me the first night, Dad, I finally understand your frustration. I said, What do you mean? She said, Dad, the ten of us tried to write a song together, and they kept putting in all this old covenant language. And they'd be like, ooh, that's great. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. We're, we're, not, we're not singing that. And they're like, well, why not? It's great. It's like, but it's not true. You know, she's, she's like, yeah, that, that language just brought separation, and there's no separation right now. We're, we're in union with the Father. Stop singing songs of separation. Stop. You know, and she was, so, she was so frustrated. I was like, welcome to my last 20 years having to sit in the front row most of the time and smiling through a song and changing the words when I'm singing it. Because, man, Elevation will do a great job with the song, and then the bridge goes, oh, Jesus, it takes us right back to Moses. Because, see, you can sing a lie as well as speak a lie. See? See, James 1 says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. That word double-minded is actually translated also. One translation says a double-covenanted man. That's a lot of our worship services. I mean, the first song is, is Lord, please come. The second song is, Lord, please flow. We don't, is he coming? Is he flowing? Is he here? Is he not? I mean, we, we, don't, know, we don't know where he's at. And so, so she got up and, and taught. There was about, I think, 30 worship leaders about... About 40 pastors came and a whole bunch of musicians. And she said something, and she'd never run, run it by me. I'd never heard it before. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And she started talking about how she, she found this article that these scientists took a choir, and they put heart monitors on each choir member, and then they put brain monitors and brain waves. And when they were all just talking. It says all of their heartbeats were all over the place and the brain waves were all over. But by the end of the first song, their hearts begin to sink. That literally in the midst of worship, it was, and it all reminded me of Acts chapter two, they were in one place and they were in one accord. Humiothumos is the Greek word. They were in one heart and in one mind. There's something about when we worship together that it links our mind, our brain waves, and it actually links our heartbeats. I mean, that's incredible if you actually think about it. And, and that, maybe that's why all through the Psalms it says, clap your hands, all ye people. Not, not a few that want to clap your hands today. There's something about when we all are doing it because it, it connects us in a fresh way. So you've got Aaron and her, and they're lifting up the arms of Moses. And you have a whole leadership team. And, and allow me, if you would, and I, I want to try to go as quick as I can through this, but in the Old Testament, the government was high priests, priests, and Levites. It was threefold. In the New Covenant, it's, it's, it's uh, episkopos, which is the word bishop. It's presbyteros, which is elder, and it's deacons, the diaconate. 
the, the helps ministry. All, all three of those functioning together. Aaron was a priest. Her was actually, if you study it, the son of Caleb. And he was actually a, a servant of the priest. He was a picture of helps ministry or leader in the church that was busy serving and ministering, ministering not only to the priest, but also ministering to others. Matter of fact, by the time you got to the first century of the church, the Bible actually doesn't talk much about how they governed. I wish it talked more about how they ran church. I believe God left that out for a reason. I believe I don't believe He's so stuck in the mud about how you got to run stuff. I think we can we can get legalistic about that. But instead, by by the time you got to about I think it was 108 A.D. and Ignatius, who was a spiritual son of of uh, spiritual son of John, and he had, he was laid hands on by Paul as the, one of the bishops of Antioch. On his way to be martyred, he wrote all these different letters to the churches, and he would write always to the bishop, the presbyter, or the episcopos, the overseer. We would call that today senior leader. Uh, it, a bishop morphed about 200 years later into that which was a bishop of bishops, if you may, or uh, an elder of elders. And he, he would write to the bishop, and he would write to the elders, the other fivefold ministry gifts serving in the house, and to the diaconate. Matter of fact, he even said, without these three, it's not a church. I mean, by the first century, they had literally gotten so strong that if there's not government in place and it's not an actual, like, ecclesia, that doesn't mean that God's not there and everything else. And again, I'm, I'm not going down that road because, again, you can become legalistic with that. But growing up in the church, I'm a third-generation preacher's kid on one side of the family, second on the other, and then traveling out for 32 years in about every kind of movement and stream you can imagine, I'll tell you what I've seen. Normally... When churches begin to struggle, when that which is being overseen starts to fall apart, it's normally because you don't have enough leadership in place or rather than holding up each other's arms, they're yanking them down. Uh, you go into... You go into most Baptist churches, you go into most classical Pentecostal churches, and they'll have deacons. A lot of times they don't have elders. And so they'll have a helps ministry, but most of the time uh, the deacons are aboard and they're not there to lift up the pastor's arms. Most of the time they're yanking them down because they're there to try to tell the pastor how to run the church. Then you go into non-denominational churches and most of them came out of some form of denominational church and they don't have deacons anymore. They have elders and all they did was make their deacons elders because it sounded more scriptural, I guess. And, and, and so the, the, there's still not ministry gifts because elders at least must be apt to teach. So you shouldn't be an elder if you at least don't have a teaching gift. Because right, that's a picture of fivefold ministry gifts. And, and then you've got the elders either there to tell the pastor again what to do and yanking the arms down. And so either you've got no arm raised over here or an arm being pulled down over here. But when you have all three, when you have a team of leaders holding each other's arms up, worshiping together, connecting together. But this is the beautiful thing, because the only way this works, the only way this works, is when this took place, Moses had not been to Sinai yet. He, he was not taken up on Mount Sinai and shown the paved work. He had not been taken up on Sinai and shown the sapphire stones of heaven and shown the, the, the dimensions of the tabernacle. And, and that when, when God gave him the pattern to build the tabernacle, I think it's interesting, the first thing God told him to do, normally when you are building a tent, you build the tent first and then you build stuff on the inside. But the first thing they did was they built the Ark of the Covenant and it took them nine months. It doesn't take nine months to build a box. But how many know that was always a picture of know ye not, know ye not, that you are the 
naos, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And you are that Ark of the Covenant that now carries his presence because you were in your mother's womb for nine months. <laughs> God always starts in the inside out. He changes you from the inside and then begins to manifest things on the outside of you. It doesn't just change you on the outside. It starts inside. But on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, there was something called the mercy seat. And there was two angels, two seraphim, facing one another, their wings almost touching. And then the blue smoke of God's presence would manifest in the middle. That was the mercy seat. And Moses had not seen that yet. But Aaron and her, having Moses sit on a rock, and two created beings holding up their arms, created a mercy seat. I think it's beautiful that in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets caught up into the heavens, uh, he said he saw these angels constantly around the throne, and they were crying, not to God, they were crying one to another, holy, holy, the earth is full of glory. They, they, they weren't telling God he's holy because God's not an e egalomaniac. He doesn't need you to tell him he's holy. He's holy all by himself. But they were telling one another he's holy because when created beings get together and they start worshiping one to another, holding up each other's arms, God says, I'm going to get in the middle of that. Whew. See, there, there's a reason why when you get married, normally you're facing one another. and Because and, and, if any two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. And that always confused me. I'm like, so is it two or is it three? I mean, which one is it? I mean, are we okay with two or are we okay with three? The Greek actually says if there's any two, there be three. Whew. That third man gets smack dab in the middle because you're going to have to go through some stuff in your marriage that if we realize that he's in the middle of us and I can see you through him and you can see me through him, then we're going to be able to handle anything that comes along our way. And so here's, here's Aaron and her and they hold up his arms and they create this mercy seat because you've got to understand something. When you get into a position of leadership in a local house, you get to see parts of each other that not everybody sees. Matter of fact, you know that there was no armor in the Israeli army back then for your backside. Armor was only in front of you. The only people that saw the backside were the ones that were armor bearers and holding up your arms. They saw every crack. Literally every crack in your armor. I mean, that, that, that means that, like it or not, I, I know it doesn't seem like it because he's got such one of the most gentle and beautiful spirits I've ever been around, but Pastor Josh has got some flaws. <laughs> all of us are still growing. None of us have this thing all figured out. None of us. None of us have arrived. And when you get around people and when you start to get around their flaws, you have a choice. You can either yank their arms down or you can hold their arms up. Because when you build a culture of grace, when you, when you literally build a mercy seat in a team of leaders, you give each other grace and you realize, yes, I saw that flaw, but I choose instead to give you grace rather than judge you. Because rather than a judgment seat, we produce a, we produce a mercy seat. It's really, uh, that's really the choice that we have. We can be Aaron and her and hold up each other's arms. Or we can yank each other's arms down and produce a judgment seat.
uh, I want to just implore you, right at the beginning stages of, of I'm going to prophesy a little bit tomorrow about it, but this is not just a church. This is a movement. This is so much bigger than even Oklahoma City. And, and in, in the midst of that, at the beginning stages, teaching something is one thing, governing in it is something else. Let me, let me give you an example, and I'll, I'll, I'll wind this down. I think my time's almost up. I don't know. I'm oblivious. <laughs> when, we, when we had our, our church in Michigan, we had a, I had a lady call me on the phone, and she said, uh, said my name is Diane. Uh, I normally have been working Sunday night, so our, my whole family, and I mean, we're talking, she had a big family. I mean, they would take up a whole section of the church. There were like 30 of them. And she said, our, our, our whole family, we, we love to worship together, but my, my job changed, and now I'm working Sunday mornings, and I've been told you have a Sunday night service. I said, yeah, that's the only service we have, as we genuinely wanted to go after the unchurched and the people we wanted, they didn't get up to about 11 a.m. on Sunday morning because they got home at six. Uh, <laughs> and, and so they start coming to the church. I mean, the whole family, and they started hearing, hearing this beautiful gospel. And they were like, my Lord, we never heard nothing like this. This is amazing. This is the one thing I love, one thing I love, and this happens to me at least a couple times a month, someone will walk up and say, that was beautiful. And I'm like, that's when I know I preach the gospel because it's beautiful. If it's ugly, it's probably not the gospel. Matter of fact, to this day, the Eastern church in the East, one of their four pillars, one of them is beauty. And what they teach is that if the message you preach and the life you live, how you treat your wife, how you treat your family, your neighbors should be able to look at your life and say, I may not agree with you, but it is beautiful. That, 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 is, that message is beautiful. I don't know if I agree with it, but that really is beautiful. And so they, they were in our, in our church for a little, little over, I think, a year and a half, and their lives are being transformed. And one day she calls me on the phone. She said, Bishop, I hate this phone call. I said, what's going on? She said, my job changed again, and now I have to work Sunday nights. And we love, we love this church, but we all want to worship together. And, and I said, well, you know, man, that, that's fine. I said, you know, where are you thinking of going? She said, well, there's this one young man I heard about. I said, I had lunch with him. A month ago, I said, he, he's a spiritual son of Creflo Dollar. He's getting a hold of this message. If you're going to go anywhere in town, that'd be a great place for you to go. And so they went over there, and they were there about six months. And one day I get a phone call, and I answered. I said, hey, Diane. And she said, you still got my contact in your phone? And I said, well, why not? She said, well, every church I've ever left, I mean, they just delete me. And I said, well, just because we're eating at a different place on Sunday doesn't mean we're still not family. What's What's that got to do? Just because we ain't gathering together for the family meal, we stop being family? <laughs> That's part of the toxicity that we've experienced in the church. But, but all, 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 all of a sudden she says to me, she said, man, I got to talk to you about something. I said, what's going on? She said, well, she said this past Sunday, she said there was a women's conference over the weekend and myself and my three daughters, we weren't able to come because we had to work. And on Sunday morning, pastor got up and start bawling everybody out. And he said, you ladies, it didn't come shame on you. And her 16-year-old son leans over and he said, Mom, remember Bishop said, if someone tries to put shame on you, you need to run. He said, to gospel. <laughs> and, and so she's telling me this. I said, well, first of all, listen. I said, don't. 
first of all, give him grace because he's getting a message that doesn't have him yet. I said, he, what he's preaching is right, but you see, this is what confuses a lot of people is, is you can preach the right message, but then how you govern is still the command and control, and that brings all kinds of confusion because they're like, wait a minute, on Sunday morning you're saying this, but now when I come to you, you're, you're, you're still ripping me. And man, you're, you're coming after me over here, and it's like, this, this doesn't line up. What's going on here? And I said, give him grace. He'll get there because that's the only place I know of in the area that's even coming close to preaching any of this. And any place else you're going to go, you're going to be frustrated even worse, I guarantee you, because they'll put shame on you every Sunday. She said, okay. She said, and, and they're still there, and they're, they're prospering. They're doing great. I mean, they still contact me every once in a while. I mean, just, just doing, doing absolutely phenomenal. You see, there's something that happens when we produce a culture that grace is not just something we sing about and something that we preach about and talk about, but grace literally becomes something that we are. That's, that's when everything changes. And, and let, me, let me say this. Let me just give you just a, a hair of wisdom here as I stop. How we handle conflict in a culture of grace is very different. I, I remember we had... Uh, we had a, a deacon's wife in our church that she would always get triggered by one of our elders. I mean, this guy literally would just, he'd say hello and she, I mean, it would just, it just trigger her. And one day she comes, she calls me on the phone. She's a bishop. I just, I just can't work with him. I just, uh, he just makes me so mad. And I, I very kindly, very gently, I said, well, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. I said, how come no other woman has come to me and gotten mad about him? Why is it only you? And she said, huh? I said, listen, I learned something a long time ago about being easily angered. First of all, love is not easily angered. So if something causes us to be quickly angered, it's normally a sign of something we're not healed of. And what we tend to do is we then use our triggers and psychology calls it classic projection. We project on others our issue. Matter of fact, listen, I'm telling you, you need to always be leery of any kind of preacher that, that, that harps on specific sins because it's probably their issue. Someone who's always preaching against homosexuality really hard, they're probably down low. I'm just telling you, listen, I, I've, I've seen it now. For years and years and years, the person that harps the most about something, it's normally something they're struggling with and nobody knows about because, as Shakespeare says, methinks thou dost protest too much. <laughs> if you're protesting too much, it's probably an issue you got, chief. And we've seen this in the Christian world. We had you know, men like Ted Haggard, who's really now doing some great stuff in Colorado Springs harping against homosexuality and we know what he was doing on the side. Bishop Betty Long was the hardest preacher against it a bunch of guys in his church because we project on others our issue. And I just said to her, I said, there's like four other women as a part of the leadership team and none of them have come to me that when he does this, it bothers them. Why is it only bothering you? And she said, well, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I said, have maybe you thought there's some kind of, maybe... 
Maybe he reminds you of your dad or your brother or uncle or a teacher or a coach. And you're putting it on him, but you're really not mad at him. You're actually still mad about something that happened over here. Because if you want to remove drama from a leader team, listen, saints, if I could be 25 again and know what I know, (laughs) the first thing I would do is at 25, I'd be getting therapy. Because listen, when you're raised in religion and you're raised in works righteousness, that stuff affects you. Man, you're raised in a fear-based theology. You don't know how to love because if perfect love removes all fear, then fear also removes love. The opposite is true. And you don't know how to receive love and you don't know how to give love because all you know is fear. That's why now anytime, anytime someone... I have people all the time like, you know, would you be a spiritual daddy to me? Would you, would you cover us? I mean, I have people use all kinds of language. I said, well, first of all, uh, I love you, but I'm really not going to spend a whole lot of time with you until you meet with my friend Nate. Uh, they said, who's Nate? And I'm like, well, uh, Nate's a root picker. Nate, see, most of the time we preach against fruit and we don't deal with root. That's why the church has been preaching against sin for years. Sin is not the root problem. Identity is. You don't know who you are. I mean, the serpent came and said to Adam and Eve, if you eat this tree, you'll be like God. They should have said we already are. He deceived them into believing something about themselves that's not true. Matter of fact, the word hamartia in the Greek, where we get the word sin from, the sin, it literally means to live a lie. So the root issue is you don't know who you are, because if you knew who you are, you'd stop acting crazy. If you knew who you were as a son of God, you'd stop acting like that. And uh, where'd my music go? That was helping. There we go. Okay. It's helped me flow a little bit there. I, was, <laughs> uh, I gotta just shut up, but listen. We we have to make up our mind. Uh, first of all, hurt people hurt people. Healthy people produce healthy people. Whatever it takes to get healthy, get healthy. Because a healthy person is not gonna be judgmental, because we judge in others what we see in ourselves they're so arrogant actually you probably are judge not lest you be judged because whatever you project on other people is normally it's a big old mirror man reflecting right back on you but when we when we choose a culture of grace and we choose I choose to hold up your arms I choose to produce a mercy seat not a judgment seat because judgment is so much easier I've been preaching for months now that most of the American church, especially the Bible Belt, prefers Moses over Jesus. And we love that eye for an eye stuff, that turn the other cheek stuff. I love your enemy stuff. Ah, Give me Moses. Because with Moses, you mess with me, I can knock you out. That feels better. Having to love you, forgive you, lay down my life for you. That's the narrow way. That's the higher way. And, and we, we, love to, we love to say, but Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he did, and that's still true. But that's still highly conditional on how you feel about yourself. See, if you run into me on a day that I like me, I love me, it's going to be good for you. But you run into me on one of those days, because we all have them, where I don't like me, I don't like you. I don't li- I'm not even sure I like Jesus that day, because it's been one of those days. It's going to kind of suck for you if you run into me on that day. And that's why Jesus said, I've got a new commandment for you. 
And the new commandment is not love the way you love. He said, I want you to love one another the way I. That's another level. That means I'm always patient. I'm always kind. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrong. Don't you know what they did? Yeah. And your pain is legit. But how you're responding to it is not. Get healed. And you know what? You can only really get healed in a place of grace. You can't get healed under law because law will say that's right. They're wrong and you're right. A, a culture of grace says, hey, come here, let us, let, us, let us hold up your arms. Let, let's produce a mercy seat for you rather than a judgment seat because that's how things are transformed. Now, this is the beautiful part. When they got in that position, the scripture then says, Joshua won the battle. But the battle was being waged up on the mountain. It was when the leadership were in place. I mean, doesn't Psalm 133 set up blessing good it is? When brethren dwell together in unity together, that was literal brethren, Aaron and her. I mean, literal. I mean, you've you got Moses and Aaron, literal brothers. It's like the oil, the ointment that runs down the beard, even Aaron's beard, and it runs all the way down to the hem. And it says, and there God commands a blessing. Listen, the blessing is not commanded on the unity that's at the head. The, the blessing is commanded when the unity that's on the head rolls all the way down to the bottom of the house. When the whole house is anointed. When it's rolled all the way down from the leadership, all the way down to the children. Because Joshua was the one that gets the blessing of winning the battle. And the truth is, he didn't win the battle. Moses, Aaron, and her actually won the battle. But the anointing that was on the top rolled all the way down. That's when everything starts to change. And I want to I wanna just encourage you. Don't, don't, don't let... Don't let your triggers, don't let, don't let your trauma drive you away from a house of grace. Because I guarantee it's going to happen. <laughs> I guarantee it. Someone's going to, I've said for years, if iron sharpens iron, that only happens through heat, friction, and irritation. And we're not just anointed to come together and bring comfort, edification, and exhortation. We are anointed to irritate hell out of each other. Because I have to get around people that get on my nerves to grow, to choose to love. That's the only way we grow up. If all I do is get around people just like me, that think like me and act like me, I'm never really going to grow. I have to get around someone that rubs me the wrong way. That's different than me, that looks different, that's a different culture, that has a different politics than I do. That I have to get around someone that thinks sometimes different and I choose to be in relationship rather than be right. That's what a leadership culture that's based in grace and we produce a mercy seat. Thank you for taking a moment to listen in to what Jesus is doing right here at Way Family Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. If you want to be a part of helping us to continue to share the gospel and get it out to as many people as we can, you can do that via Cash App at dollar sign Way Family Church or you can visit our website at wayfamilychurch.com and click on the giving tab. For more information about Way Family Church, you can connect with us on all social media platforms or simply go to wayfamilychurch.com. Be blessed.